Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton, and today we are going to talk to David R. Cameron about a new book of his essays on federalism, national unity, Canadian disunity, and the threat of Quebec secession, with a particular focus on the stormy period from the mid-1960s until the mid-1990s. David Cameron is currently Special Advisor to the President of the University of Toronto and a professor in the Department of Political Science. For many years before this, he was Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science at the University of Toronto. He worked for the federal government during the period of the first Quebec referendum and the negotiations that led to the Constitution Act of 1982. He then worked as Deputy Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs to the Government of Ontario during the Meech Lake Accord and then for the Charlottetown Accord in the second Quebec referendum as a special constitutional advisor to the Premier of Ontario. In 2018, he was named a member of the Order of Canada for his, and I quote, governmental expertise in federal negotiations and constitutional affairs. This year, the University of Toronto Press published a book of his essays under the title the Daily Plebiscite, Federalism, Nationalism, and Canada, which was edited by his colleague, Robert Vipunt. David, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here, Greg. The Daily Plebiscite is used not only as the title of the book, but it appears very often in your essays. Can you tell us why you were so drawn to this phrase and why you think it fits Canada so well? Ernest Renan gave a very influential lecture, just speaking briefly about the provenance of this, in 1882, um, entitled What is a Nation? And uh, this, that later became a very influential uh, essay. Uh, and he gave that lecture in the light of the Franco-Prussian War uh, and in the context of the disputed territory of Alsace-Lorraine between Germany and France, the border country between the two countries. And he argues in his uh, essay against an understanding of a nation in terms of race or language or religion. And instead, he argues that a nation is a community with a shared history and with a sustained desire or will to live together. So Renan characterized this as un plebiscite de tous les jours, a daily plebiscite. And I like this because it underlines, to my mind, the contingent nature of political communities. Sometimes that is forgotten when one is talking about nations and nationalism. But they're not eternal, and they're not primordial, they are associations that ultimately depend on consent, on the continuing willing support of their members. And all this seems to me to describe Canada as a national community pretty well. We have a fairly long history of living together, in fact, quite a long history if you look at other constitutional regimes around the world, um, plus a positive desire on the part of Canadians to keep that thing going, keep Canada in operation. And that goes for Quebecers, as has been shown in a couple of referendums. So we've had lots of crises and problems in this, where like many, many other countries, 
But when we get down to brass tacks in this country, we always decide to keep the show on the road and to carry on together. And we've been successful at doing that so far. We're going to focus mainly on the essays that document what you term the 30 years of travail. So uh, let's begin with your article on Lord Durham, which you describe as, and I quote, exploring the great fault line of British North America. How and why did you decide that Durham's report was so important to understand the terms of contemporary Canada? Thanks. Well, just a word on the fault line. What I was referring to was uh, the French-English uh, divide or relationship, however you want to describe it, as a structural feature of our country from the very beginning. But there's a, there's a wonderful irony about Lord Durham and his impact on Canada. He was sent over from Britain. Uh, one of the reasons he was sent over, I think, was because his colleagues found him insufferable and wanted him out of the country for as long as possible. But more seriously, he was given the commission to address the problems that were laid bare by the 1837 rebellions in British North America. And he decided, Durham decided, that the only way to ensure the peace, the progress, and the liberty of British North Americans, which included French Canadians, was to assimilate French Canadians into the English community which he claimed was the superior race. And that's the way that people thought and spoke at that time. So he recommended that Lower and Upper Canada be united. Um, they were separate political entities at the time. He believed that with time and with lots and lots of British immigration and no French immigration, of course, and living in one political community, the English would ultimately swamp the French. He also recommended that the new United Province be granted responsible government, a limited form of democracy and self-rule. Well, the British government accepted his recommendations that a single province be created, and ultimately that responsible government be granted. The irony here is that instead of that leading to the disappearance of French Canada, which is what he uh, was aiming for, it led to a sophisticated system of mutual accommodation in which neither the English nor the French would dominate the other. And this was within a single constitutional and political framework. In fact, the accommodation of French Canada has been a feature of our country almost from the beginning. There have been historically impulses to assimilate and to suppress and so on, but when push comes to shove, consistently uh, people went for accommodation rather than uh, rather than the reverse. The United Province experience in the mid-19th century led to its this system's formal institutionalization in the establishment of Confederation in 1867. The United Province was split into Ontario and Quebec, and Francophone Quebec became a critical player in the new federation. It also became the de facto homeland of French Canadians. So the Durham experience, for me, underlines just how powerful the Canadian instinct to accommodate rather than to assimilate was and is. And it showed how futile it would be for one of our national communities uh, to try to dominate or suppress the other. Now, 
the first essay in this collection was uh, drawn from your book, Nationalism, Self-Determination, and the Quebec Question, which was published in 1974. Robert Vipin has said that the questions you asked then have proven to be remarkably prescient and accurate uh, predictors of how the sovereignty debate unfolded in the 1980s and 1990s. So I want to ask you to summarize what you predicted at the time and what you feel you got right and what, if anything, you did not anticipate. Well, the question that uh, led to that book, I, have, I was having a conversation with a colleague, and uh, Bill Neville, actually, and he said, um, well, of course, of course, Quebec has a right to national self-determination. And I thought, does it? Uh, and this kind of reflection led me to write this book. Uh, does it have a, a right or an absolute right or a unilateral right to self-determination? Many people... Uh, then and since, have argued that it does. I argued that it did not, not under international law, not under the Canadian Constitution, um, not in the real world. The idea that a province in a federal country could unilaterally decide on its status and give effect to that status on its own without negotiation, and that the rest of the country would just have to swallow it, made no sense to me, and it makes no sense to me. Secession, for example, would have to be painfully negotiated, given that the interests of the rest of the country would be profoundly affected by such a move. But that implies that a clear enough demand for change would have to be addressed by the rest of the country in some fashion, and not simply ruled out of court. And it implies, too, that secession would not be treated as treason, but as a legitimate, even if mistaken, political choice. It would be handled politically, not by the appeal to force. Uh, you can see a different approach in the case of Spain and how it's uh, attempted to deal with Catalonian separatism. And there are hints of the same more rigid approach with Boris Johnson saying that there should, will not be a second uh, Scottish referendum. This is not the approach that we've taken in this country. And it's I think we've been very blessed with our political leadership, and I include René Lévesque in that context, uh, and I for approaching the, uh, this issue in the way that they have done. And it, I think it's significant that uh, Pierre Trudeau never thought of charging treason uh, for the secessionists against the secessionists. Uh, he always, I think, regarded it as ultimately a political issue. And so I was very happy that it was the position that the Supreme Court of Canada blocked out in its celebrated 1998 uh, secession reference. Uh, and I think this approach has its roots back to what I said earlier, the principle of mutual accommodation that has shaped so much of our history. If you ask what I got wrong, I guess I would say I had, I had no idea that it would take 30 years to get past this. Now, you were the director of research on the uh, Task Force on Canadian Unity, and uh, this Royal Commission was established in 1977. It produced its reports early in 1979. Can you tell us why the task force was created, how it came to its ultimate recommendations, and the nature of the federal government's response? And I would say highly negative response in some ways to uh, the task force? 
Well, it was set up in uh, 1977 as one of several initiatives uh, in response to the election of the Parti Québécois the year before, which uh, sent shockwaves through the country. It's hard today, I think, even to remember what a jolt that was to Canadians when uh, the Parti Québécois was ultimately elected in 1976. And uh, the task force was set up by then Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau to allow the public to air its views on the national unity issue. It was meant simply to report on what people said. It was not meant to make recommendations or policy proposals. Uh, that's why it was called a task force and not a commission. Trudeau knew damn well what he wanted to do. He didn't need any policy advice from anybody. Uh, nevertheless, the task force decided to do exactly that, offer some policy advice, make recommendations, largely because that was what key commissioners and staff thought they ought responsibly to do. So it held public hearings across the country, met with experts, engaged in really passionate discussions internally, all of which shaped the ultimate recommendations. With its insistence uh, in its recommendations on the need to accommodate the forces of dualism, the French-English relationship, and regionalism, uh, both of which were very powerful in the country at that day and that remain constant uh, features of our society, the task force uh, with those recommendations strayed a long ways from Pierre Trudeau's anti-nationalist individualism and constituted, I would say, the most coherent, standing, federalist alternative to his ideas and his policy approach. Well, not surprisingly, it was received pretty coldly by the Trudeau government, uh, politely but coldly, and its recommendations fell on deaf ears in Ottawa. It did have a significant impact, impact on the Quebec Liberal Party under Claude Ryan, but uh, with his beige paper, but because he never got elected premier, that was never uh, a kind of active uh, um, set of consequences. Uh, it was also, I think, highly consistent with the spirit of the Meech Lake Accord in frankly recognizing the structural role of the province of Quebec as the homeland of the Francophone community in North America. So what was at least in your view, missing or wrong-headed about Trudeau's constitutional and political agenda following the first Quebec referendum of 1980? Well, I guess you get a hint from what I've said so far. I think Trudeau's anti-nationalism and his rigid adherence to individually-based language rights did not effectively or fully respond to the aspirations of Quebec. When that deficiency was on its way to being corrected by Brian Mulroney, and Robert Bourassa and the other premiers with the Meech Lake Accord, Trudeau used his considerable influence in English-speaking Canada to scuttle the agreement, thereby keeping Quebec from signing on to the constitution under which it was being governed. So tragically, in my opinion, we missed at that point a historic moment of opportunity. In fact, in your essay in the book, you obviously were very angry about his intervention at the time. Can you tell us a little bit about your immediate reaction to what Trudeau did at Maison Aigrole? I was a great admirer of Trudeau in very many ways. Uh, but one of his qualities was to use, he was an incredibly effective um, debater. 
and he discussed things when he was in politics to win. And so he, uh, when he gave his, it's called weirdly, Maison Eagle speech, uh, which was the, uh, where he did a slashing attack on, on Meech Lake, um, he was, he was savage in his uh, critique of not just the agreement, but the players, that the political leaders that put it together. And his arguments for a man that is as, was as perceptive and intelligent and as logical as that, his arguments stank. They were very, very, it was, it was rhetoric. It was not analysis. And I, I just found him as a retired politician intervening in this way tough to take. Well, as our witness to yesterday, take us back to the near-death experience of the second Quebec referendum in 1995. Uh, I certainly remember it. I was Deputy Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs in Saskatchewan at the time, and we as a government had been preparing uh, for months for both a yes-vote scenario and a no-vote scenario. We knew it was going to there was going to be a real possibility of a yes vote. Tell us what was going through your mind uh, the evening of the referendum. And if you had been uh, Prime Minister Jean Chrétien's chief advisor at the time, what would you have recommended that he do in the event of a yes vote? Well, what was going through my mind on the evening of the referendum was that Canada was woefully unprepared for a yes vote, so far as I could tell. Uh, in 1980, the time of the first referendum, I had been involved in a group working uh, in the Department of Justice uh, under Jean Chrétien on a contingency plan, should there be a yes vote in that referendum. I got little sense that, in, that any serious work of this sort was being done in Ottawa in anticipation of a possible yes vote in 1995, which deeply upset me. Jacques Parizeau, the then Premier of Quebec, I mean, it was, it was Bouchard who was successful in turning Quebecers to the yes vote, but it was Jacques Parizeau who was the Premier who would be, in fact, uh, in office following through on whatever the results were. And he would have moved, it was clear, he was, and he, he said as much, he would have moved with lightning speed had he won the referendum uh, to put facts on the ground as quickly as possible. And I think he would have caught the federal government flat-footed. And I thought there was a serious risk that the whole thing could go off the rails. So prior to the 1995 referendum, I would believe there should have been a fully developed federal strategy in place with all the relevant actors prepped uh, so that they could deal with a yes vote should it have happened. When the no vote actually happened, though barely, I did think that the federal government's uh, behavior later was effective in, in, uh, in um, making the Supreme Court reference. And after the uh, opinion from the Supreme Court introducing the Clarity Act, I thought those were astute moves that would shift uh, any future discussion of separation to a, a higher and more disciplined plane. Right. In, in these essays, in fact, you laud the, um, the Supreme Court of Canada's judgment in the Quebec secession reference. Uh, I was wondering if you could just uh, 
describe sort of your reaction, it strikes me that the judgment was very consistent with the quotation earlier about the need for compromise in this kind of a federation uh, that you wrote about many, many decades before. Um, can you describe the secession reference and uh, how it fits with what you see as the fundamental uh, nature of Canadian federalism? I think the judgment of the Supreme Court, uh, it appealed to our better nature as Canadians. Um, it made it very clear that membership in our country is based fundamentally on consent. That what is being put together at a particular historical moment could be taken apart, peacefully, constitutionally, democratically. Not that it would be easy to do. In fact, extremely difficult and challenging to do, and few societies have managed to pull that off, but that it could be done and it should be done in that fashion. And the subsequent Clarity Act, which was really four square based on the secession reference opinion of the Supreme Court, the federal government's Clarity Act, gave muscle and structure to any future secession process and negotiations that might occur. I think that judgment. Uh, on the secession reference also broke new ground internationally, revealing the extent to which just, just societies are properly dependent on or grounded in the willing consent of their citizens on what you might call les plebiscites de tous les jours, daily plebiscites, the willing consent on a continuing basis of the citizens to sustain their membership in that society. You make a very eloquent case for compromise in the Durham essay, and I'm going to read it in full and then ask a question about it. Reaching a compromise between people who are free and equal and who hold strong opinions and well-developed views is difficult, not easy. And it has more of nobility about it than it has of a tawdry diminution of the human spirit. Successful compromise requires an effort to understand the other person's position and point of view, and it requires an honest search for a resolution or a common interest around which both can rally. It implies a relationship de tous les jours, for it leaves each person with dignity and each in a person to approach the next round, for a next round there certainly will be not in a spirit of revenge or conquest, but in a spirit of good faith and mutual respect. Now, focusing on your comment concerning the next round, is this quotation about compromise still relevant given the last few years of history, quieter history concerning Quebec, and looking ahead to the next 10 to 20 years? Well, I think we have had a quieter period uh, over the last couple of decades, and uh, I, I think that um, I, I don't know when the next challenge, which will call on our resources of compromise, uh, will happen. So I can't, you know, the short answer to your question is, I guess, I don't know. But you assume that there will be a challenge of some type, is that correct? I do, yes. I, th I mean, I, I can't imagine uh, us simply sailing forward in the sunshine without uh, getting into a choppy water at some point. Um, 
At, at the moment, I think what's happening uh, is each community is evolving to some extent on its own uh, with common institutions like uh, the national government, um, armed forces, uh, um, uh, bureaucracy, and so on, um, and, and a degree of exchange and you know an economy that's fairly well integrated. Um, but still, a good deal of uh, space for each of the uh, English and speaking and French speaking communities to evolve as they see fit. Uh, are there events that could happen that could lead us into challenges? I mean, as I look at the current situation, I mean, I might identify as possible candidates uh, childcare, the federal childcare initiative, uh, issues related to the environment, the pandemic. Uh, and then more critically, I think, Bill 21 as a candidate. But if you take childcare, I mean, that's a major federal initiative right now, smack in the middle of provincial jurisdiction. And yet, so far, it's been successful and relatively uncontroversial. And indeed, the last province, Ontario, is on the cusp of signing on. Everybody else has agreed to it. So uh, given that the national plan is modeled on Quebec's, and Quebec is receiving a large chunk of money, it has not become a cause celeb. It could have, but it has not. Uh, if you take the environment, Ottawa and Quebec City are, are pretty well aligned on their climate policies. So the federal-provincial conflict on environmental issues is not focused on Quebec. It's more with Alberta and the oil and gas-producing provinces. So far, there's been no attempt to build a pipeline across Quebec territory, which would set off a considerable alarm. Um, and so this potentially explosive file has been a relative non-issue in Quebec. If you look at the pandemic, I think there would have been some possibility of uh, significant challenges and difficulties. But given that the primary responsibility for managing the pandemic rests with the provinces, but uh, and you have Ottawa playing a supportive role, but this issue has not led to significant intergovernmental conflict. I think partially because the jurisdictional responsibilities have been broadly uh, respected, and also it's a really critical national crisis. And indeed, Quebec has asked for and received assistance from the Canadian Armed Forces at certain points when they've required it. But I think. Uh, Quebec's Premier Francois Legault has been poking the bear a bit recently uh, with the passage of Bill 21 on secularism. That's the one that banning the hijab and other religious symbols for teachers and others in authority. But up until now, political leaders in the rest of the country have not taken the bait. So this has not become a source of bitter conflict between Quebec and the federal government. It certainly could be, but it has not as yet. Quebec has employed Section 33 of the Constitution, the notwithstanding clause, to protect Bill 21 from attacks on the grounds that it is curtailing Section 2 charter rights related to freedom of religion and expression. If the courts were to discover some limitations in the notwithstanding clause that required Quebec to curtail the provisions of Bill 21, I guess that could create some excitement, but I think it's un probably unlikely that they will do so. And even if that happened, the quarrel would be uh, with the Supreme Court, not directly with the federal government or the rest of Canada. So I think the closest uh, that we've come to another test case, which would uh, challenge our uh, resources of compromise, 
uh, is Bill 21, given that from an English-speaking uh, Canadian perspective, it is a clearly illiberal, illiberal measure. Uh, I think it's rooted in what uh, is a very different understanding in Quebec of what it means for a society to be sec secular. I mean, they, I think, operate on a model that's much closer to France's approach to secularism than the Anglo-Saxon world. David, uh, we're delighted to have this book of essays. I want to uh, especially thank Robert Vipon for uh, all of his work and putting the essays together and in his wonderful introduction and survey of the historical events, which act as a, a prelude to your actual essays. Uh, very few people in this country have had the opportunity to experience what you've experience and then look back both as a political scientist and I would say as a historian uh, to give us this uh, immense sort of uh, portrait of Canada during these very difficult years. So thank you very much for joining us today. Greg, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. guest today was David R. Cameron. His book of essays, The Daily Plebiscite, Federalism, Nationalism in Canada, was edited by Robert Vipon and published by the University of Toronto Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. The podcast was made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on January 18, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.